This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. There was something I, I, I wanted to do, so if you guys, just for a second, I'm not going to just maybe do this every Sunday, but last Sunday, I took off my shoes, and it was called the removing, of the, removing the Old Sandals, and it was very significant uh, for me, and it still is, and so as a statement, even heavenward, I just want God to know that I recognize the significance of preaching the word, and so I recognize that it's sacred territory whenever we enter into it, but also the removal of those shoes was also a hallmark of God shotting someone's feet with a readiness for a new territory to be taken. So Moses is going to encounter the burning bush, and he's going to remove his sandals, and God is going to take the nation of Israel into a new beginning. And that uh, at the end of 40 years in the wilderness, uh, Moses, or I'm sorry, Joshua is going to be asked to remove his shoes, his sandals, and he's going to, after 40 years, those shoes had not worn out, and now God is going to give new shoes, and new shoes for a new land. We've been going through Deuteronomy, and I'm not sure how long I'll be going through this series. I'm sort of lingering in chapter six right now, and it's a very long book, and I actually, when I started, I didn't intend to go through it exhaustively. I wanted to go through it in a um, overview sense and then hit on some key points because something is taking place in Deuteronomy which I believe is very, very important for us today, and that is, uh, as I've said before, it's a symbol of the second. Uh, Even the name Deutero, uh, Deutero, Deutero means second, and nomo means law, so it's a second law, but it's actually the second giving of the law. But there's a whole bunch of seconds in it, and it's, it's actually profound. It's a second invite to a second generation. First generation dies off, and that's actually when the book is starting. Moses is speaking to them, the, the final uh, warrior from the previous generation that uh, is going to die in the wilderness because of unbelief has finally passed away. And now Moses kicks into a whole new gear. He recognizes they're about to cross and it's his ending. It's the ending of the first campaign. He's a symbol of the first. Joshua is a symbol of the second. It's a second invite. Same invite. Take the land. But it's the second time it's been given. It's to cross a second body of water. It's not the Red Sea. It's the Jordan River. Uh, It's to... uh, enter into a second territory under a second leader to live a second life. And what we see in the New Testament is God says the same thing. It's like you have to leave your first behind. Take off your old shoes. Put off Adam. You know, they had clothing and they had shoes that hadn't worn out for 40 years. Take it off. And now it's time to enter into the land of promise, the land flown with milk and honey, This is the new covenant in Christ's blood. And so what we see is a parallel because for us, in many regards, we are stuck in first behaviors 
right now in the church. We believe second realities, but we are functioning in the wilderness, sort of like they sort of did. It's not that they didn't believe that there was a land over yonder. It's just that they weren't in it because there were big giants in that land that were rather intimidating. And it's the same thing that caused their father's generation to die off in the wilderness, but this is a new generation, and it's a fresh faith. And there's a fresh work of grace. I desire to go where God leads me. And that's what it symbolizes in removing those shoes. I want God to shod my feet with the preparations of the gospel of peace. But I want him to shod our feet. So, symbolically, this uh, message is called, If God is for us. I'm going to be uh, very specifically in, uh, I don't know why my... uh, does this not have battery or something? I, it's just not working. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to take this and just control it and f- see if you can fix it. And then uh, just go forward for me, Nathan. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's good classic logic in the Christian life. And yet many of us actually don't conclude this. We know the scripture, but we don't conclude this. If God is really for us, technically, there is nothing that can stop the church of Jesus Christ. So you might as well start getting some big vision. Nothing can stop the forward movement of the church of Jesus Christ. That's heavenly logic. Do you really believe that he has won the victory? Do you believe that everything required for life and godliness has been supplied to us? Do you actually believe that he is seated on high with all things beneath his feet. Because if so, then you have heavenly logic. It's just called faith. You believe. You believe that God is precisely who he says he is, and so therefore your life begins to showcase that faith in and through the fact that, well, if he really has taken this territory, then I should actually move forward and take it. Mm, Yeah, that's good thinking. So Deuteronomy 6.25, remember I just said, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Uh, well, this, is, this isn't actually what it means in Deuteronomy 6, but it's pretty cool how similar it is. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. It's like, yeah, it'll be righteousness for us. If God is for us, who can stand against us? If you obey and heed what God is saying, it'll be righteousness for us. I just like the phraseology. What it means is we will actually be clothed in righteousness. We will have God Almighty as our shield. I like it. So that's in the chapter that we're going to be digging around in today in Deuteronomy 6. And so Deuteronomy, Moses in in, uh, Deuteronomy 5 is going to rehearse the Ten Commandments. And now he's going to start to break down. Now, this is a speech, and some people would say multiple speeches of Moses, but he is going to actually be rehearsing. It's a second giving of something that's already been given. And so he's repeating things, but he's repeating them to a new generation. And so there's a freshness to it. And this is going to be a critical starting package, almost like a summary point. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your sons and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. 
O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now this would be a good break point, sort of like say law, pause, think about this. This is sort of the prelude and then Moses is going to hit it. He's like, this is the command. Did I just hit something? No. This is the command I'm going to give you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So this is like this chief command that is going to come in Deuteronomy, very significant uh, to the Hebrew nation, to the Jewish people, uh, all throughout history. Deuteronomy 6.16. So in this process, we're going to have the command, and then we're going to have these statutes that are going to be laid out, these commissions that are going to be, so this is how you are going to live in this land. So if you want to succeed in this land, this is how it is going to be done. And one of the first things that is going to be mentioned is this, and I'm going to build the message around this statement because it's very significant. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So Massa and Merida have the same name. It's named two things, but it's the same thing. There was a testing uh, of the, where the people of Israel are going to make a mistake. Moses is going to sort of get caught up in the same mistake uh, while they're there. And it's, I mean, all throughout history, this becomes a big, big deal. And it becomes a point of reference. Do not do what they did. And so as a result, even after 40 years, we see the same speech. It's like, hey, do you remember what happened at the very beginning 40 years ago? Don't do this. When you go into this land, don't do this. Don't put the Lord God, your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So let's look at the test at Meribah, Massa, same place. <clears throat> Exodus 17, one through seven. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Uh-oh. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff and which, with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So, this is the story. And up to this point, I mean, for some of us, we don't see what's actually wrong with the Israelites' behavior. By the way, do we need another row, guys? Is there something we could do to help in the back? <clears throat> Welcome, guys. So we have a test that these people are bringing up to the Lord, but I, oftentimes we don't see it. We're just like, they're just asking for water. And yet it says that they're quarreling with Moses and they're putting the Lord God to the test. What does that mean? And so there's going to be a very specific quotation that's going to come out of this that I think helps our 
North American minds to sort of understand what is taking place. He named the place Massa, or testing, and Meribah, provoking strife, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, now this is the quote that I think helps bring it home for many of us in our understanding. Is the Lord among us or not? There it is. All right, so God, you say you're all that, but if you're really among us, you would give us water. Okay, I don't know if you see a problem there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to contrast that with a different form of response in this exact situation. Because in many situations, we're going to find ourselves lacking water. But the way that we respond to the trials and the tests in our life is not to test the Lord. There's actually a proper response that God is going to train us in so that we do not do this. If you try and do this in the land of promise, it will not go well for you. The provokers, so that's what they're known as. These guys were provoking the Lord. So what are they saying? Give us water or we don't believe you are with us. If you were really with us, we wouldn't have difficulties. If you were really with us, we wouldn't have these challenges. So take away the challenges and we'll believe you are who you are. Whoa, there's a mistake in that. What you're gonna see uh, at the cross is a similar provoking if you, are really, if you really are God, come down from that cross. Show us that you are all that. You see, God is doing something, and when his people come in and attempt to contradict it and say, God, if you were God, you would do it my way. Jesus does it his way. And if he comes down from that cross, we don't have salvation. And so as a result, don't test the Lord as in Massa. Don't think that you know better than what God knows. Let God be God. Do you trust him? You see, this is an issue of faith. What you see in Israel at this time is unbelief. And so as a result, they begin to hurl accusation against Moses and against God. So there's a test in the wilderness, and I'm going to call it a test in the promised land. There's two different sorts of tests that we're going to be bringing out. You see, there's a way that you are not supposed to test God. And in a strange way, there's a way that you are supposed to test God. I know, don't you love it when the same word is used for two different things? And one says, don't do that. And then it says, oh, and by the way, you should do this. Well, there's a distinction between them. And so that's what we're going to walk through. A test in the wilderness is a test of unbelief. Okay, God, if you really are who you say you are, then you would do this for me. But that's very different than faith. God, I know you are who you say you are, so I'm going to rest in full confidence that you will do it. It's a very big difference between unbelief and faith. And as a result, there's a distinction between that which keeps you in the wilderness and that which brings you into the land of promise. Exodus 17, 7. Here was the question. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the wrong sort of test. The test of unbelief. So wilderness testing, let's just go through uh, some of the scriptures. That have, uh, all throughout the Bible, God is going to reference this testing, and he's not happy with it. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice. So even though they have witnessed the mighty hand of God, they still are saying, is God really with us? Because if God was with us, we would not be facing these difficulties. 
Why are we going through this? How could this happen? How could we be backed up to a Red Sea? They pick up stones to stone Moses. <laughs> then God parts the Red Sea. They come across. They run into the Amalekites. Why would we come all this way and we get bitter water? And then God defeats the Amalekites supernaturally. And then they get to Meribah and they don't have water. You know, every single thing that, that is happening, they're upset and they're grumbling and they're complaining. Hmm. This isn't good. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. They had seen God's work, and yet, and so think about our life. You see, how you appropriate difficulty is very, very significant in this. When you think that God's people should never suffer any challenge, it actually puts you in a dangerous position to have some wilderness thinking in your mind. They craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. It's amazing to think that God is faithful even when men are unfaithful, and that's what Paul is going to rehearse to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is going to be faithful even with wilderness testing. He's going to bring in a second generation. He is still going to fulfill his word. Everything that he said, he will do. In the wilderness, men provoke, a rock is struck, a fountain is opened. I don't know if that brings up a memory in the New Testament, but in the promised land, men provoke, a rock is struck, and a fountain is opened, and that's the cross. God is still faithful. He's giving water, even though those that are striking him and bringing out the water, I mean, literally, it's a Roman soldier that's going to stick a spear in his side, and out of his side is going to flow a gusher. We have a fountain opened up for Israel for sin and uncleanness, and this river of life. And to the Jew, as I've said before, to you guys have heard me, blood is known as life to them. That's the life of the body. And so when you take the symbol of blood and water and mix them together, you have life water. You have living water. And a fountain is going to be open. A rock is struck and out is going to flow a river. And so we have an incredible parallel that is taking place. Jesus is that rock. What is the opposite of testing God at Meribah? Because that's actually what we're after in this message. Just to learn about testing and how bad it is actually doesn't do us any good unless it's to just convict us of the fact that we may be grumbling and mumbling under our breath. But what we really want to have is a vision of where God wants to take us. What is the opposite of testing God at Meribah? Well, this is profound, isn't it? Believing God at Meribah. I know that's, that's, that's quite a shocker, uh, isn't it? But that's actually what is required. You see... You're thirsty. There is something that you crave. This human dimension of you has needs. However, how you handle those moments where there is real thirst in your natural side of life, and whether that's a financial thirst, whether that's a physical uh, one, whether that's a practical one, whether that's a relational one, there is a thirst where you have a need, where your human side is impaired, and you feel a real craving for something to satisfy it. You see, how we appropriate God and who God is to us is very, very significant. And when the church makes God into a, 
you know, the human jukebox. It's like, this is what I want to hear, God. No, no, that's not the song I want. Stop, stop. This is the song I want. In other words, we feel that God is there to serve us instead of the opposite way around, that we are actually created to serve him. The fact that he is a servant is shocking because he is. And he came to this earth, removed his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, bent his knee and washed our feet. But it's to set an example to say, this is how you are to live. Not self-serving to say, hey, this is what I crave. God, if you're really God, you would give it to me. You know how many people approach God that way? You know how many people have walked away from God because they put a test before God and God didn't do what they wanted him to do? It's like, well, God is obviously not real. I mean, I would never want to be one of those ones. God, if you're real, then strike me down with lightning right now. I would never even mess with such thoughts, right? And yet, there's so many people out there that are testing God in the Meribah fashion instead of believing God at Meribah. What would that look like? So there you are. You don't have water, and you're at Meribah. Could you imagine if you actually had this as your quote? Watch, world. The Lord is among us. Remember what they said? If the Lord is really among us, or, or is he or not among us? Well, prove it, God. Watch, world. The Lord is among us. It's faith. It's confidence. Watch what God will do. God is faithful to his children. If he has said it, if he has spoken, will he not do it? He promised that he would care for us. Watch. He will care for us. You see, it's a completely different attitude. The pattern for kingdom living is based on this. It's called faith. So if you're going to enter into this land of promise, you cannot live as your forefathers did in the wilderness, testing God. You must believe God. So this is the pattern, the believer. God, we trust you. You have led us this far. We trust that you will lead us onward. So could you imagine how refreshing that would have been to Moses uh, if they arrive and there's no water and it says in the scriptural account that the people, instead of grumbling, decided to believe their God and trust him and just to rest that they had confidence that he knew their journey, that he had always made supply, that he had always gone before them and he was not going to forsake them now. Well, how refreshing would that be? Well, how refreshing to our souls that when the water dries up, and when we enter into a difficult season, that we would refresh our faith, that we would remember what God has done and what God has promised. No, oh, God, we trust you. You have led us this far. We trust that you will lead us onward. I can't tell you how many times in my ministry I've said that. It's my logic. It's like God has not led me this far only to drop me and forget about me. If he has cared for me every step of the way, I trust that he will See my situation right now, and he will care for it. It's just faith. God, we trust you. If you say that we should take this land and that, gi and that the giants will fall before us, I say let's take the land and witness your power. That sounds like Caleb and Joshua. You see, there were two different approaches to the land of promise. And those that are going to be testers and provokers are going to die in the wilderness. But those that are marked by faith a confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do precisely what he says he will do, they're gonna enter in. God, we trust you. If you say it in your word, it is true. It's that simple. God says it, we believe it. 
So the test of Jesus. It's amazing to think that Jesus was tested. It's typically called tempted, but the same, same concept. Matthew 4, 5 through 7, then the devil took him up into the holy city, took Jesus into the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know where that was written? That was written in Deuteronomy 6. In other words, we just read that. It is written. And do not put them to the test as they did in Massa. Do not do it the way they did it in Meribah. This is not how the believer functions. And so as a result, you're even going to see Jesus whip that out. Putting God's promises to the test. So this is interesting because we have do not test the Lord as in Meribah, but then we have this idea of putting the Lord to the test, but there's a positive spin on it. It's like, how does that work? I thought we weren't supposed to put the Lord to the test. Well, there's something that God is going to sort of unpack for us that is a proper way of handling these circumstances. And in a strange way where we test and prove God's word to be faithful. So Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. It's interesting phraseology. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You see, what you're going to see is an action of faith that is being required. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. You know, and if technically, if you've ever heard me speak on tithe, uh, you know, the old Hebrew uh, is the tenth or the tenth percent. That's what tithe even means, a tenth. And the full tithe for a Christian, he owns it all. Technically, it's a lot more than 10%. I'm not against the, ten, the tithe concept of 10%. However, 100% is actually what the New Testament is going to unveil for us, is that he owns all of it. He purchased this with his blood. And so bring the whole thing into the storehouse. Test me in this. Test me, guys. When you bring your whole life and set it in my hands, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Is anyone willing to try it? Is anyone willing to be a believer? You see, the opposite, the testing at Meribah is like, oh, I don't believe that God is actually even here. God, if you're here, then you're going to have to do something that really impresses me. The opposite side is, God, I'm impressed with you. So here's what you deserve. Here's my faith and my confidence. And that's what God says, test me in this. Put your faith in me and watch what I will do. So I'm going to just sort of take that beginning part of, take the, what, what does it say, the full tithe? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So I'm going to just take that out and put this little insert in of, insert heavenly promise here. So I don't care which one it is. I want you to insert what God has spoken to you, that which is clear in his word. And he says, test me now in this. And I mean, you can... Take your choice from all of the exceeding great and precious promises. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So this is 
moving into what we could call audacious territory, where as believers, we are actually meant to test the Lord, but not in the way they did it in Meribah, in the wilderness. No, we're supposed to test him to say, God, I trust you, I actually believe you, and so I am going to do as you say, and I'm going to watch what you will do as a result. You're putting God to the test in just a whole different way, but it's one of faith as opposed to unbelief. The necessary action of faith. So we're going to go back into the Old Testament. It's an interesting uh, story that we're going to unveil because it parallels this. And it's the story of the Philistines coming against Saul's army. And Saul's army is in a very, very difficult place. And we've talked about first and seconds uh, throughout this series a lot. But you have a first is always over here. I always stick it on this side of the stage. And then a second is over here. And so, obviously, the chief one, Adam, Jesus. You have two lineages, and if you are in Adam, you die. And so you must put off that first clothing and put on Christ as a second clothing. You must be in Christ. That's where salvation is found. That's where everything you need for life and godliness is supplied. It's found in Christ. This is your righteousness. This is your access into the heavenly throne room of grace. And so in the micro version of that, you have all these twos that come out in Scripture, first and seconds, Cain, Abel, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob, Saul, David. And there's even a, a micro one in here. You're going to see that God always favors the second. The second one is always the one that is going to be sort of the hero in the story. They're the one that has God's blessing, which is very significant because in the New Testament, you're going to see flesh, spirit. You're going to see law unto grace. You see, we are saved not by keeping the law in our own human effort. We are saved by God working on our behalf, grace. We are saved by him doing something for us. And when we put our confidence in us, we die. When we put our confidence in his working, we live. And so in this story, you're going to see Saul and you're going to see a second. But it's an unusual second, Jonathan. Isn't that an unusual second? It's like, yeah, he is a second, isn't he? And he's an incredible picture of multiple things. I mean, he could be a picture of Christ. He could be a a picture of a believer in this story. It's an incredible picture of the power of the Holy Spirit and what happens, the different form of testing. Boy, it is, is Saul aggravating God. And it's funny because he's in Gilgal. He's right at the Jordan River, and some of the Hebrews are already starting to cross over. The Israelites are crossing over into Gad and into safer territory. Well, didn't they come from the east and make it across the Jordan River into the land of promise? And wasn't Saul put in charge of the land of promise? Isn't he king over this? And yet what you see him is slowly dwindling in his strength. He's down to 600 men, and only two of those men have have arms, like shield and sword. Two! And that's Saul and Jonathan. Okay, we're in a bad situation here, guys. This is a really bad situation. And what you see is Saul sort of looking across the Jordan like, I think it might be time for me to go. So here we are in Deuteronomy, and we're about to send forth a nation across the Jordan River. The river's going to part, and we're going to take this land under Joshua. Yay! And And Moses is giving the pattern for the kingdom. And when you go over there, this is how you live. And what's funny is, well, 
they're going to blow it, and they're going to not live that way, and you're going to see the very judgments that God promises they'll have if they fail, but there's still promise. And you're going to see, and this is why I'm attracted to this story, you're going to see one man stand up. He's a second. You're going to see Jonathan do something in this which is very different than his father, Saul. Saul is sort of looking across the Jordan for an escape. I mean, he doesn't want to forsake his country, but what's he going to do? I mean, how's he going to win this? He's passive. He's being taken advantage of. And then you're going to see a very different behavior in Jonathan. 1 Samuel 13, 5 through 7. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. Uh, okay, now I already forewarned you that uh, we have 600 on our side. Okay, do you need me to go through those numbers again? 30,000 chariots, <laughs> 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. How you doing? Okay, so you can understand why Saul might be a little uncomfortable leading his people against that. Okay, when only two of the Israelites have weapons. Okay, this is a dark situation, guys. This is not good. Now, let's fast forward to 2020. I don't know if you feel outgunned, outmanned, if you feel like the enemy has more representation in this earth right now than the Christian voice, yeah, you know, you'd probably be accurate. We sort of look like Saul's army, and we're lingering awfully close to Gad and crossing over the Jordan and leaving this grand promise of God behind. Because obviously it's not working. Obviously, this whole Christian thing, I mean, maybe God didn't mean it. I mean, if God was really who he says he is, then he would do something about it. All right, let's not test the Lord as they did in Meribah. Let's remember who our God is, and let's get inspired afresh by watching this second function. So when they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth and when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So in the land of promise, this is right where they're originally going to enter, sort of right near Jericho. So they are sort of right back where they started. They're, they're like moving out instead of moving in. And instead, the Philistines, who are used to having their territory to themselves and are not too excited about the Israelites hanging out in their land and are trying to take back what once was theirs. You know, the same thing I was saying is happening in America right now. It's the ancient spirits that are like, hey, that belongs to us. Lawlessness, fear, deception, delusion. Yeah, they were the big boys on the block here uh, in the savage days before Christianity actually came to this country. And they prefer to have it back. The question is, are we going to pull a Saul? I mean, come on, Saul, what are you doing, bud? And he, Saul could have a good answer, too. He's like, uh, guys, I'm not exactly sure what sort of military movement I should have with 600 men, most of which are fleeing right now, none of which have weapons. How am I supposed to move against that, it's 
It's impossible. Yeah, I get it. It's impossible if you have eyes of this earth. If all you see is what the human eyes can see, if you measure according to human standards, I get it. I understand that. We as believers have a different measuring system. If God is for us, who could possibly stand against us? There's our measuring standard. So the question is, is God for us? That, that's the key question, because if you can land that one, it actually begins to solve the rest of the Rubik's Cube. So what you're going to see is a line down the middle, the Dead Sea up through the middle to the Sea of Galilee. That's the Jordan River. So right above that star, which is where Saul is sort of lingering uh, right about now. And to the east is the land of giants. It is not the promised land, even though you're going to see territory that is given to Reuben, Gad, and east, and, and half the tribe of Manasseh. That's because they're going to request it. They are fine settling in a land prior to the land of promise, which is a previous message I went through. However, this is not the land of promise. Why are we gravitating there? Why are we going into a territory to come up with solution that is actually not God's solution? Do, do we not remember the book of Deuteronomy? God is going to go into great detail to say, when you take this land, this is how you take it, this is how you keep it. And if this ever happens, here's what you do. He's going to give all the remedies for a situation like this. So the story continues, 1 Samuel 13, verse 22 and 23. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So I'm going to sort of break this into some different boxes. So if you, you can see this on the screen, on, the, on my left, your right, looking at the screen, uh, we have this testing with unbelief. This is, do not test me as they did in Massa. That's that. It's testing with unbelief. If God is really for us, then he would do something about this, right? And then I'm going to draw a line, and we're going to cross over into a new territory. And I like that because on the map, you know, when you cross over the Jordan River, you end up in the land of promise, right? And I'm going to have the first box, which is blue, be a symbol of resting with faith. In other words, where you know God has done the work, praise God, he's done great, great things, you've seen him do his work, you're a believer. And yet you end up in the zone where many of us are right now. We're resting in that faith, we know God is faith, we know God is true, but in a sense we're still sort of hanging out with Saul and we see darkness encroaching on our culture. It's not a bad place, it's just not good. It's not where God would move us in such a circumstance. In other words, you can't stay there. There is a resting, but then there's also what we could call a testing with faith. So it's wonderful to have that rest in Christ and to know your salvation, but if you really do know Jesus, then when darkness begins to encroach upon the land, there is a rising up that takes place. And you're going to see that, what we're going to call the testing with faith, not the testing with unbelief, but the testing with faith that we're going to see Jonathan do. So 1 Samuel 14, 1 through 6. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, 
Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So what you see is Jonathan's reasoning is very different than those that were in the wilderness. You know, if God is really for us, then he would do something here. Instead, Jonathan knows that God is greater. And if God is for Israel, then we need to act. But Jonathan, your father isn't acting. (laughs) Well, but I must. You see, he's a second. All of those that are going to die off in the wilderness did not act. But the second generation will act. And what you're seeing is a second generation acting. They are doing. They're not just hearing. They're acting. If it is true that God is for us, then who could possibly stand against us? So I want you to freshly kindle these thoughts and don't just go back to Samuel and go into this ancient theater and say, oh, what an interesting story. But to recognize this is the same truth today. And so much of the church is hanging out under a pomegranate tree. And they are surrounded by the Philistines that are seeking to destroy. And yet what we do in such a circumstance is very telling of our faith. Do we actually believe the word of God in an hour like this? Or are we beginning to lose that clarity of who is actually in control? As Jonathan says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. He doesn't mind if we have a huge multitude or if there's just two of us. Makes no difference to God. He's God. 1 Samuel 14, 7. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. I really like that statement. And if I were going to put us in a position, being the armor bearer in this story and and making Jonathan the picture of Jesus is actually very effective as far as a picture of how we relate. Jesus is going to say, hey, let's go take him. He's speaking to our soul. The Spirit of God is literally enlivening us saying, stand up, do something. But wow, there's it's a big host. I mean, soldiers like the sands of the seashore, they have 30,000 chariots. I mean, this is like ridiculous to even stand against. That's not how the armor bearer responds. The armor bearer is appealed to by Jonathan. And the armor bearer says, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Boy, do I want that to be my answer. When the Spirit of God says, Eric, will you do this? Absolutely. Where you go, I go. Will you speak this? Absolutely. What you desire to be spoken in this world I'm your armor bearer, which is interesting because we know what an armor bearer is, the one that's going to carry the stuff on behalf of the man, right? On behalf of Jonathan. But pretty cool thinking that we are armor bearers. Just like we bear the name of Christ, we bear his armor. We are fitted in his armor. We are armor bearers. And so that's why I say it's a pretty cool uh, concept, even though that's not what armor bearer means. It could if we just sort of squint and look at it just right. 1 Samuel 14, 8 through 12. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hands and this will be a sign to us. 
So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. That's called a test, by the way. Okay, we're going to show ourselves, and if they do this, we're going to do this. If they don't do this or they do this, we're going to do this. This is about as crazy of an operation that I've ever heard of in my life. We're going to jump out and expose ourselves to the enemy and say, hey guys, we're over here. And then we'll figure out what we're going to do. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you something. So what does that mean to Jonathan? He put out the test. Now he knows. God's saying, take him. You see, Jonathan is moving by faith. And God seems to love that. I can't tell you how many great stories in missions history I have read of men and women that have been in very difficult situations and said, God, if you really want me to go take that mountain, just make it clear to me. It's not wondering if God exists and if God is going to be in their midst. It's, God, do you really want me to do this audacious thing? Because I'm willing if you tell me to. All right, now that's moving in a different direction. The test at Meribah, moving away. The test of Jonathan, moving towards. See, it's not just trying to find some rest in between. It's like God wants us testing. He just doesn't want us testing the wrong way. 1 Samuel 14, 13 through 14. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. I know when you have soldiers like the sands of the seashore, that doesn't sound like very much. However, this is a first movement which is so audacious. You have Two guys in the entire military armed force of Israel that even have weapons. One of them is going to sneak out of the camp, leave everyone behind, and with an armor bearer is going to actually, and I don't know if it's like, here, you take the sword, I'm going to have the shield. And so Jonathan's coming through and knocking him down, and then the armor bearer is like, I don't know. Uh, but it's all, all we know is what we have in the story, and that's what it says. They killed about 20. Listen to this. You see, when one man, one woman, is willing to rise up and believe and to test the faithfulness of God, to test God in the way of faith, to say, God, I believe that you are bigger than all the enemy. I believe you have defeated the enemy. I believe that you are a victorious God, and so I am going to move into this territory of trust, which makes me very vulnerable. It is very vulnerable to step up and show yourself to the Philistines. That is not a wise maneuver unless you know that your God is greater. If you know your God is greater, it's actually just a form of wisdom. It makes total sense. Saul doesn't make sense. Saul, you are the anointed king of Israel and you're sitting there under a pomegranate tree staring longingly into the land across the Jordan, wondering if you should escape to spare your own skin instead of to secure that which God has entrusted you. Oh, church of Jesus Christ, where are we right now? 
Are we sitting under a pomegranate tree? Are we fleeing across the Jordan wondering why did we do this in the first place? Are we sidling up to the culture saying, hey, look, you know, I know that I've always called myself a Christian, but look, I'm not actually that different than you. Look, I think we can be friends. Once you sense that the world is turning on you as a believer, do you side with the world or do you continue to side with Christ? You see, what's supposed to happen is we're supposed to grow 10 feet taller as believers. We're supposed to say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we sitting here for under pomegranate trees? When the Philistines are coming to take the territory that God has given to us. And I'm not talking about territory like North America as if that's our grand fight. I'm talking about spiritual truth. There is truth in this world, and I have grown up around it, even though I've seen the swallowing up of biblical truth in this country in my lifetime. I literally have watched it dissipate into almost nothing. But there is a heritage that we have in this land where God was known, and even the secularists lived according to a biblical worldview because that was the world they lived in. Something dramatic took place on this continent that set a course for nations to be altered. More missionaries have been sent from this territory than anywhere else. This is a very, very special place with a very, very special heritage. And right now we're on the brink of losing it all. Now my goal as being a pastor is not to secure the land of America. It's to secure the inheritance of the saints, to make sure we do not forget the one we serve, that we do not forget what he has promised to us in his word, that we do not forget the work of the cross, that we do not forget the merits and the efficacy of his shed blood, that we do not forget that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. That's what I want to preserve. And when I see the church of Jesus Christ cowering and going into the fetal position, I desire to spark it, to encourage it to action. Listen, when someone takes a step forward and there was a trembling in the camp, in the field and among all the people, I think we have an earthquake, guys. The garrison and the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. This is a real story, by the way, guys. You have a multitude, a numberless host. Whenever they say sands of the seashore, that means it's too many to count, guys. It'd take way too long to try and count these. That multitude is going to melt. Why? Well, God gets all the credit. It's not just Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20. But what God was looking for is someone to test him. Someone to believe that he is, in fact, God Almighty. That what he has spoken to this people, he will back up. Is there anyone in this camp who is willing to rise up and say, Lord Jesus, look no further. If you need an armor bearer, I'm going with you right now. So, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, uh, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. He assumed something had to have happened, right? And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. 
someone needs to stand. I would prefer, and I think God would prefer all of us to just rise as one man and say, yes, Lord, we will bear your armor right now. We will bear your promises. All that you have given to us, we hold on to it and we follow you with confidence wherever you would lead us, wherever you would go, even if it be to a cross, even if it be into a prison cell, even if it be unto public humiliation and mockery, even if it mean the emptying of our bank accounts, the loss of our property, wherever you would lead us, Lord Jesus, we will go. Where are you during the roll call? There's going to be a roll call called because God's going to do something. God is going to work. God is not sitting on his thumbs. He will not be mocked. God is righteousness. God will have an answer for evil. And when the earth trembles, the Mount of Olives divides in half, where are you going to be during that roll call? Obviously, someone's gone out from among us. The church is awakened somewhere. You see, though God could do all that God does without us, he could, he's God. He has chosen to do his work in and through us. That can confuse many of us because we can't figure out why would he use me? Yeah, I, I wonder the same thing. Why would he use any of us? But he has chosen to do his work in this world through his church. And so as I oftentimes say, when someone is awakening to the love of Jesus and they're seeing the grace of God and they believe in Jesus, it's because someone was praying. So how did that person start praying? Well, God sponsored that. God was moving on that person to pray. But God is moving on us right now to do, to not just pray, but to act. Will we heed it? So few in this world right now are hearing a clear message of action, a clear message of the gospel. There are many churches that have not even gathered since March. There are many Christians that have not been with the body of Christ in over six months now. And there's a weakening that has taken place in the body of Christ. What a great opportunity for a fresh strengthening. You see, when you are weak, it's a great opportunity for God to imbue us afresh with purpose and grace. And the enemy is famous for overplaying his hand. I've said this many times, but the enemy does not have brakes on his system. And so he gets going, and self-control is something that is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of darkness. He does not have the ability to control himself, which is why he ends up giving away his position. He ends up giving away his whole plot. He gives away his conspiracy. It ends up coming out. It just sort of oozes out of him. It's like, oh, no, keep that back. He doesn't have the ability. His sham will be exposed, just like Haman's was. It will be exposed, and God's purpose will be revealed. And in the end, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Fact. So where are you during the roll call? Right now, where are you? Are you with Saul? Sort of that natural man propensity to sit under your pomegranate tree? I mean, pomegranates taste really good. Are you sitting under the pomegranate tree? 
Or are you with Jonathan? Are you with him in the test? Five action points. To refuse to be numbered amongst the fearful, I will not remain amongst the fearful. I'm not going to stay with Saul. I recognize that all of our, nat- our firstborn state is fearful in a situation like this. It is. But you need to put that off and you need to wear some new clothes. You need to put on the garment of praise, of salvation, the robe of righteousness, the armor of God. You have new clothing that has been supplied you. To be actively doing the work of faith. You cannot just esteem faith, but you must exercise it. You have been given something. You have weapons. A whole bunch of people do not know what they have. They do not understand weapons. You do. So what should you do? Use them. You need to smile at the impossible odds. God loves impossible odds. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't too. God purposely creates impossible odds. Gideon, case in point. Elijah won against, what, 700 and some odd prophets of Baal in the grove? Who wins? Well, God wins. But God will still use a man to stand up against the impossible. God doesn't mind the odds. In fact, he loves bad odds because bad odds shows that he was the one that saved. So he purposely will create situations like we're in today so that all of the church will know who did the work. At the same time, God delights to share with us in that work. He wants us to participate. How about this one? To audaciously plot to defy the enemy. Could you imagine? The enemy's audaciously plotting to destroy truth and righteousness in our culture right now. You ever thought of getting together as a church and audaciously plotting? Doesn't it sound fun to plot? We don't do enough plotting. Every, you know, I've been studying uh, war for a long time now, right? And war is all about strategy. You know that God has a strategy? God has a plot. He does. He is plotting. And I would love to join with God and say, you know what? We can take him on the flank here and then we'll do this here. Catch him right there. There are a lot of souls in need of truth. A little plotting might be necessary to say, how, Lord Jesus, do you want us to win the loss today? How about this one? Five, to head out in search of the earthquake. We need a revival. We need God to do something mighty. But he's not going to do something mighty if Saul keeps sitting there and Jonathan sits next to him. If Saul's sitting there, you get up and you follow Jonathan. And you go where he leads you in search of that earthquake. I know wherever Jonathan's going, there's going to be an earthquake. There was an earthquake at the cross. There's an earthquake at the empty tomb. There's an earthquake at Pentecost. Where God goes, there's an earthquake. And so as a result, go out in search of that earthquake. Acts 4, there's an earthquake. And they're filled with the spirit of boldness. We need an earthquake. But you're not going to get an earthquake under the pomegranate tree. You're going to get an earthquake by rising up and following Jonathan. All right, let's finish with this meditation, guys. I don't know if you've ever heard this scripture before, but it's a good one. If God is for us, who 
can be against us. If God is really for us, which according to his word, he is our advocate, he is our strong tower, he is our rescuer, he's our savior, he's our intercessor. I mean, there's a lot of words to say, yes, he is for those that will put their confidence in him and find salvation in trusting his work. God is for the church of Jesus Christ. He is for those that will believe in him, humble, repentant, and believing. When you humble yourself and you repent and you believe in Jesus, you have an advocate. You have a savior. If God is really for us, then who could possibly stand against us? And you can name all the different factions, all the different movements that are out there that are seeking to destroy the truth of Jesus Christ in our day and age. They cannot stand against the kingdom of heaven. Remember who we serve, Church of Jesus Christ. Jonathan is ready to go do some exploits. The question is, are we willing to get up and follow him? Father, We need you to shake this room. Shake our souls and fill us with the spirit of boldness. Lord, move us out of our lethargic position. Move us away from the pomegranates into the dangerous territories. Lord Jesus, there are some in here that are probably supposed to go. They're not supposed to just stay in Windsor. They're supposed to go. And Lord Jesus, I pray that each one of us would be supple and sensitive to your leading, that we would not presume that we're supposed to keep sitting here. But Lord Jesus, that you would show us where that enemy is and how to go take him down. So Lord Jesus, that souls would be set free in this hour so that your name would be glorified. Lord, we love you and we submit to you with these requests. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask them. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.